Hello, and welcome back to Someday We'll All Be Dead, a podcast where we talk about all the things with a social work perspective. I'm your host, Hallie Harris, and I'm a hospice social worker. Today, we're coming back for part three of our conversation with Marie and Katie about the Department of Corrections. And uh, again, same warning as I had before, there are some conversations about more difficult topics having to do with the prison system and violence, etc. So if this doesn't seem like a good conversation for you, please feel free to skip it. If you have comments or questions about this episode, feel free to reach out to me at someDayDeadPC at gmail.com or on Twitter at someDayDeadPC. I hope you enjoy. Thank you. All right. We're back for part three because this is a never-ending conversation, I feel like. <laughs> Welcome back to Katie and Marie, our resident expert of all things Department of Corrections. <laughs> <laughs> So I have a few follow-up questions from our last two episodes. Shoot. (laughs) So before I get into that, I just want everyone to know we've been getting great feedback from the first two episodes. Everyone's very intrigued by your stories and your experience. And so, again, thank you for being here. Of course. My dad loved it. (laughs) Shout out to dad. What's dad's name? Oh, Uh, no, don't tell me. No, I can tell you. We call him the Great Randino. The great Randino, thank you for listening. You are also <laughs> fucking fabulous. I love that. <laughs> All right. So in our last couple of episodes, we were talking about some people having mental instability or psychotic breaks in prison. Mm-hmm. And there was a brief mention about someone that either did or likely did have antisocial personality disorder. And they were still engaging in the therapeutic alliance, which I was very curious about. Could you speak more to that? Because in general, what they teach you in school is that is very low likelihood of any success with antisocial personality disorder engaging in therapy. So I'm curious about this. For sure. Um, so I think we're talking about, I'm going to call him Mr. Scary. I think that is the one. Yeah. So he is... I think the only reason he engaged in therapy as much as he did is because he was so motivated to get out of max custody, Mm. right? By the time I had met him after that last assault where he had blinded or partially blinded that cellmate, Mm -hmm. he'd been in max custody up to that point for five years. So he was willing to dance for us, right? And jump through every hoop. We actually got to a point where we saw like diminished returns with him. Mm. We'd given him a job on the unit. Like, I mean, everything was going really well. And then I think he started to also realize we were kind of just feeding him a bunch of shit. And I I remember... (laughs) I remember a meeting going upstairs, talking to superintendents, and I had told them, I said, don't make me into a liar. You know, I don't want to treat a client like a mushroom, keeping them in the dark and feeding them shit. Mm -hmm. He's too smart for that. Like, he also realizes that's what's taking place. So it got to a point where he just knew, it doesn't matter what I do, you're never going to fucking let me out, right? I have, I I unfortunately passed the point of no return with this last assault. And I just kept telling him, no, that's not true. Like, which is what I was being told by superiors, right? No, if you just do this extra thing and like, let's try this other thing. And so I think that's the only reason that an antisocial person was willing to engage in therapy. So, well, what was his sentence? Like, was there a possibility of him ever getting out? Prior to that last assault. Oh, this was after he left. Yeah. I mean, I met him once he was, I think episode one, we talked a lot about life, uh, life without, uh, possibility parole, what we call LWOP. 
No, because that last, that last sentence was give him twenty five years for each eye. So why would he have even been assigned to therapy, or like how did that work? How did he even get into therapy, knowing that wasn't going to matter, or there wasn't going to be a benefit for him? I don't... Well, can I ask? Is the benefit? Could it not be stimulation, attention? You know, I mean, if we're talking about someone with antisocial personality disorder, yes, therapy, like evidence-based, is that it's not as effective, right, for rehabilitation necessarily. But I don't think that speaks against someone not being willing to engage, knowing that, well, here I am. I might not be going anywhere. Might as well just have fun while I'm here, (laughs) you know? Do you know what I mean? Well, and And I'm going to come back to that point. In a little bit, so hold that. So too, I'm but. gonna go on a small tangent after the might as well have fun. So the thing I didn't talk about when we were talking about Mr. Scary last time, I think I told the story about it, mentioning his index offense, and I had said, you know, you never bring this up. You must know I know what you did, and he had one of those like shutting down blind moments of I don't want to talk to you about that. Right. I didn't ask the question I should have because I was a baby therapist and I was terrified to know the answer. But the question I should have asked was, do I remind you of your wife? Because mm. we had a whole conversation once. This is a tangent, sorry. We had a whole conversation once about countertransference and transference. And, and so we were talking about that therapeutic alliance and, and how it impacts us. And I was... I so was, people that are not familiar with therapy terms. <laughs> yeah. Countertransference and transference. Yeah. So Just briefly. Countertransference is where, and you guys can correct me because, oh man, I, I feel like I'm about to butcher it. I'm a bottle in already. Um, countertransference is where it's ta- taking place between the clinician and the client first, right? We are transferring our own emotions and biases, thoughts and feelings and all that stuff, potentially onto the client. They're reminding us of somebody. And transference is when the client is doing it to us. Basically, or did I get yeah. those backwards? No, you got it right. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was like, I feel like countertransference was always clinician first. Because a C made me think, oh, that's I, a good way to remember that. that. Yeah. yeah, I was like clinician, counter, and then I could do client and counter too. So, which, which obviously we realize that both of those are negative yeah. experiences mm-hmm. within the therapeutic alliance because you are allowing external experiences and beliefs and opinions to impact that relationship. Yes, and. It can be therapeutic if you recognize it and talk about it and work through it. No, that's good it's too. It's when you yeah. don't recognize it or talk about it and then it becomes a bigger issue. Well, so in this moment, I yeah. did recognize it, right? Because I had talked about what, what was the creepy thing he said about, I'm going to shrink you down and put you in my pocket, take you with me. <laughs> and I was like, no, that's weird. Right. Don't say that. Right. So I knew something was taking place. And... I asked him about it, and I tried to explain transference, and I said, do I remind you of somebody you went to school with? No, I don't think that's it. Do I remind you of your mother? That got a big chortle out of him. He was like, no. I didn't ask the question I should have. Do I remind you of your ex-wife? Did you think of it, or you just didn't? Oh, I thought of it. I was terrified to know the answer. Okay. Because, again, this is the woman that he brutally um, stabbed and almost murdered. Right. And... I didn't want to know the answer, right? Mm-hmm. Even even if he's sitting in full restraints in front of me, nobody wants to hear, yeah, you remind me of this person I almost fucking killed once. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, so I couldn't ask it. I, I was terrified. I didn't want to know the answer. I wish I had. It's one of those lessons learned uh, that we talked about last time. So 
I lost my train of thought with this already. My God, we're only five minutes in. <laughs> what happened when you pregame? <laughs> so, Mr. Scary, well, help me get back to it, girls. <laughs> we were talking about engaging the therapeutic alliance, and you were... With antisocial people. Yep. Yeah. So, I think that this individual in particular really liked me. Uh, on more than a therapeutic client, you know, on those grounds. Because I even had a, uh, a co-worker once say, I'm not ever afraid that Mr. Scary will hurt you. I would be terrified of what he would do to somebody else who hurts you. Mm. That's very Hannibal Lecter of him. That's a very interesting conversation. It was. someone else. Yeah. Because uh, I always... Telling. Not that you ever... Again, you go into prison every day and you should always be hypervigilant and, okay, today there could be an assault, something bad could happen. And so it was always at the, the back of my brain. Was this the same person or persons that were saying they thought you spent too much time with him? No. No. This so is a different. Totally different coworker. Okay. This was another clinician I worked with um, and I'm still really good friends with outside of work. Uh, that person has also left corrections. And... They had just said, yeah, I don't think Mr. Scary will ever hurt you, but he's going to, he's going to kill someone if he ever witnesses you being assaulted by another inmate. And part of me was like, well, thank God somebody's going to come to my defense. (laughs) (laughs) I'm okay with this if it's another inmate. Like anybody who's willing to come help me, I'm in, I'm, I'm sold. Um, At that point he was not getting out. So what was the consequence? Right. So... So I think that, uh, yeah, you're right. What we learn in school, somebody who has antisocial personality disorder is highly unlikely to engage in therapy in any meaningful way or at all. And I think he was just willing to jump through hoops. I think he ended up liking me a lot. So he was willing to chat with me. It also got him an extra hour out of his cell every week, right? Now I do, I am going to come back to that point because I agree with all of that. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious, the system that doesn't really value people as people and they're prisoners, uh, why they would bother to put someone that's already got life in that system. Do you know what I mean? For sure. Like, why not? I think I understand the question, so I'm going to reframe it. You tell me if I'm on the same train of thought. If if somebody's already going to die in prison, why not lock them up, throw away the key? I right? mean, that wouldn't without, be my question, but that's oh, my Without question. rehabilitation, right? Right. That would right. be my question of a system that doesn't seem to give a shit. Correct. Yeah. And again, this is my personal opinion. All I can say is, is legislatively, like, we would have to answer for that. Okay. So it's a requirement of the program that Absolutely. you got put in. Yeah. It's a CYA, gotcha. if you will. Uh, yeah. Oh, I will. I know. Yeah. I would Absolutely. <laughs> I, I mean, we have to be proving that we're doing something, mm-hmm. even if they are not going to release someday. We still are required to allow them opportunities to pro-socially engage with staff and peers, to rehabilitate, to gain skills, to gain, you know, confidence in those skills. Mm-hmm. All, all the things. I, I mean, you still give them every opportunity to live the best quality of life, even if they're still going to die while incarcerated. That kind of makes me happy a little bit. Yeah, I mean, again, I think I said it last time, like, I will fiercely defend what Washington State is doing in corrections, because we are. We're doing it right. And and what I mean by that is we're putting a huge focus on 
rehabilitation efforts, re-entry efforts, um, making sure services are lined up for people if and when they do release so that they are successful members of society again. And so this is the state you want to commit a felony in. Noted. I mean, just, just throwing it out there. Like, if you want every opportunity... Don't do that. Don't commit felonies, kids. Drugs are bad. Um, <laughs> don't do drugs. Uh, what was that was old saying, right? <laughs> I don't, so... Well, just don't do meth, at least. Uh, or heroin. Or heroin. Heroin doesn't exist anymore. Stuff. What's the big... The big one's fentanyl right now. Yeah, heroin's coming back. Yeah. All that shit is I'd laced like with stuff, that. though. Uh, yeah, don't do it. Say no. But we we are... Washington State, in general, is light years ahead of some of the other states. I mean, Colorado is up there with us. Nebraska, surprisingly, is up there with us. Um, I mean, we're all talking to each other. We're sharing information and research. And we are. We're starting to realize 95% of all inmates will someday release. And don't you want them to be successful? Right? They're going to be your neighbor. Don't keep going down that rabbit hole because we're saving that for a a little bit later. Um, (laughs) Bring it back. Yeah, so to bring it back, again, (laughs) antisocial people, don't often engage this particularly particular individual had every reason to engage. He wanted, despite knowing he was going to die in prison, wanted a, a better quality of life. And that meant a lower custody level. Oh, so. All right. Lower custody level. Oh, that's right. I forgot that part. I forgot that part. We had Me talked too. about that at the last. Yeah. The last I mean, one. he won't be in restraints when he meets with peers or staff. He'll get to walk to Mainline, which is our cafeteria, right? He'll get to eat out of his cell. He'll get more freedom, more opportunities to program. It's good incentive. He can actually walk to the the library instead of having that library cart delivered to his front, the cell front. Um, so there were tangible benefits. Yeah. But you said there were, then he stopped engaging because it was BS. Yeah. What was the BS part that he was being promised then? I think we just kept moving the goalpost. Mm. Right? Mm. We said, hey, do this thing for two weeks. Two weeks would pass. Hey, you've done a great job. I'd like to see you do it for another two weeks. Mm. And we just kept moving this goalpost. And it got to a point where I'm like, listen, if you don't ever want to release him, then you, the superintendent, needs to come down and tell him that. Because I won't be the mouthpiece of feeding him, feeding my client bullshit. Mm-hmm. I had, again, lessons learned. He was so unique, not only from a therapeutic point, but from a, like a clerical administrative point, I learned a ton of stuff. Like, how do you advocate for your clients within prison settings? Because mm-hmm. I did. I, I, and, and how do you advocate for them without setting off any alarms? Right. Right? Because that was probably the same time that people were saying, you seem a little too connected, a little too invested. I'm like, I'm invested because I don't want to fucking lie to my client anymore. And because he's the only one engaging. Right. Like, how is that fair? Yeah. And so it, he... Yeah, I, I look back at that time and think, man, did I learn a shit ton of stuff mm-hmm. from every angle. So, yeah, I think we just kept moving that goalpost. And finally he got to a point where he's like, I'm going to do this forever. And you are never going to fucking release me. So I'm going to stop trying. Just to tie a bow on that, how, yeah. did, how did it end? with? Did you get a, like a closure visit with him? Um, so the last, the last visit I remember having with him... We had a, a combined... And that, for people that don't know, this would be a therapeutic thing that you were supposed to do as a therapist, is mm-hmm. have a closure visit. Yes. And leading not, up, preparing for the closure, closure visit. Right. It's not, not just, not like, just for, this is it. you know, friendly benefit, but... 
Yeah. Well, and we had his new therapist who was going to be in closed custody, who was receiving him. I think she still works there. She actually came and did a dual session with me. And I was like, this is going to be your new therapist. Would you like to tell her what we've been working on, um, what you continued to work on? And then we had kind of like a finalized treatment team, if you will. And we met with a bunch of people. So like officers were there. My supervising psychologist was present. And so because there were about six staff members to him, we allowed him to be out of restraints Mm -hmm. because we outnumbered him. And at the end of the meeting, he shook the doctor's hand, right, who was a man, and he said, thank you for letting me out. And it was one of these moments where I was really happy that my psychologist, my supervisor, said, don't thank me. Like, thank your therapist. She's done all the advocating for you. And I'm always quick to say, don't thank me. Thank yourself. Right? Like, you did all the work. So I said that, but... As he was shaking that doctor's hand, he turned to me to shake my hand. And this is one of those rare moments, right? There's never any physical touch between offenders and staff. And I actually, like, the only time I've ever shaken offenders' hands were when they were graduating a program. Mm -hmm. Like, I shook hands when people graduated sex offender treatment. If they were releasing from prison, I would shake their hand. I would never hug them. Just personal boundary. And... But so I shook his hand. That was our first physical touch in probably 11 months of knowing each other. Um, I shook his hand. He said, thank you. I said, thank yourself. You did all the work. And other than that, I I did see him around the prison for the next few years. Um, Mm -hmm. He eventually graduated to, um, he moved through closed custody. He moved out to what we call our expansion units, which were medium to minimum custody. We'll never have a cellmate again going forward. So even if he lives on... A unit that allows double housing he has a flag in his record that says nope he'll live single housing but yeah every once in a while I'd see him out at mainline if I was out there hanging out with the officers and I'd call him over and say hey how are, how are things going and I got to hear about um, he's reconnected with his daughters he has two daughters in the community and that they finally when they turned 18 they were gonna start visiting Wow. yeah so huge I mean he hadn't seen them in <clears throat> over a decade and yeah. Wow. So that's how it ended. I mean, and now I did hear uh, that, okay, this is actually a chuckle. He has a job out in the expansion and he's a barber. What? Whoa. I'm going to let that sink in. Yeah. <laughs> I probably have the exact same reaction. I'm like, I'm sorry, we gave him what job? Wow. Yep. Which is a pretty coveted position. Um, because people really enjoy it. It allows you to be artistic. You get to do whatever. Like, you have a lot of freedom with that job. You're I mean, also given tools. Yeah. Unless he's only given clippers. I don't know. No, I'm sure he's given everything a barber would be allowed. Wow. I know. He's made some serious progress. Though. I know. I mean, must be. <laughs> and I, I remember, it's funny that I just told that story. Because I spoke at a high school, like a year ago, about working in corrections. And I could tell that I was like just depressing the hell out of these students. And so somebody finally said, can we hear a happy story? And I'm like, sure, yeah, happy stories exist in prison. And I told that story. But when I told them that he became a barber, all the kids were like, wait, what? And I go, see, and that's the look you get and the reaction you get. You want to hear a happy story, but you're not sure that's the happy outcome you actually wanted. Yeah. But he seems to be doing well. 
last I heard, right, before I left prison, that's what he was doing. Um, nice. So he has made a ton of progress. Go him. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. So just briefly again okay. about, I had, I guess I didn't really flesh out my question, but. My bad. <laughs> no, no, no. You did fine. I didn't flesh out in my notes. Uh, psychotic breaks and severely mentally ill people in prison. So eventually this will lead again more into the prison system in general, but thoughts on that or did you even have experience with were you specifically only in the sex offender unit oh so no <clears throat> again i started in max custody where i worked with all individuals and then i specialized i moved into that specialized area oh, okay. so that was quite it, it was it was like its own entity uh and i think my question is more like thoughts on prison versus i guess what would be western state or something so similar to Western State, we do involuntary medications as well. And so if somebody's having, I mean, Mr. Scary is a perfect example. He actually is on involuntary medication mm. and he takes uh, an antipsychotic shot every 90 days, I think is what he's opted into. And it's not because, I mean, he takes it voluntarily now. It is a, it's an involuntary order though, because if at any point he were to refuse the shot, it, it, got, it allows prison staff to um, forcefully administer it because otherwise he's a danger to himself and others mm -hmm. or mostly to others. So, I mean, we have involuntary medications the same way a hospital would. Mm -hmm. If somebody's having a major psychotic break, I don't know if that answers your question. I think so. I mean, I, I guess, I don't know, maybe a bigger... A, thing that I'm thinking of that I really haven't fleshed out in my own mind but just trying to wrap my brain around I know there's people that are developmentally delayed in prison mm -hmm. that have mental illness that are in prison that maybe didn't qualify for being sane or not sane mm -hmm. but it was definitely a factor mm -hmm. in how they ended up there oh that is 100% true I mean I can yeah. think of two very low functioning psychotic individuals who were on my caseload when I worked with sex offenders and one of them probably should be in a hospital setting. He is extremely low functioning, uh, constantly, despite being on meds, constantly responding to internal stimuli. Um, so like what you see, like people talking to themselves and kind of re reacting to things that I can't hear or see. And yet they're in prison because prison is the number one mentally housing for this country it's the cheapest oh, way to house them i know it's so it is sad. that's what's that what that's what really sucks about it um is that it's the cheapest place to house somebody and so while i believe he would have been more successful in a hospital setting you know i that that was not that decision was made in a sentencing court and then he was put under the parole board and then the parole board has continued to flop him so that means add five years to his sentence is that ever even a possibility of, or is it completely about sentencing? Like, could someone move to... Western. Western, from prison. Uh, because I doubt, like, it can't go the other way, right? If you get sentenced to Western and you rehab, then you're just out when you're done, right? You don't transfer to prison. Well, unless it's or criminal, you... right? Yeah, if you're, if you're at Western to regain competency so you can eventually stand trial... 
Right, but once mm. you're sentenced and you get sentenced as going to Western. Yeah, it's you're, all you're after correct. sentencing. Yeah, sentencing is its own fucking beast within the criminal justice system. Yeah. And, you know, I always tell people, too, who want to shit all over prisons, I'm like, whoa, 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 what's your issue with prisons? And as soon as they tell me, I'm like, so your issue is actually with sentencing. Once they come to us, I can't change what they were sentenced. I don't even have to agree with it. Most mm-hmm. of the time, I don't. Mm-hmm. But that those are two completely different criminal justice entities. Yeah. And so I have issues with sentencing, right? Like, we're fucking over-sentencing drug crimes and under-sentencing assaults. And we have complete gender bias when it comes to women and men, particularly when it comes to sex offenses. Yeah. And racial bias. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it, it never ends. But the problem is within sentencing. Once I get to prison, Washington State is doing everything they can, in my opinion, to rehabilitate them. Mm-hmm. Right? We're giving them every opportunity to help themselves. There are plenty of them while incarcerated who choose not to and want to just continue to blame the system. But all those opportunities are present. You can take education courses. You can take um, substance abuse treatment you can engage in mental health therapy you can work to lower custody levels like there are all these opportunities particularly pre-covid i mean i can't i can't speak a ton to covid because covid has jacked everything including prisons no it's just made everything so different yeah but those opportunities have always been available if they are willing to engage well so there is then mental health support outside of the sex offender unit. Oh, yes. Yeah, so yeah. the RTU level of care, the residential treatment unit, which is the special offender unit on the Monroe Correctional Complex Hill. So, again, that complex was made up of five prisons. One has since closed. Um, but of those five that make up the complex, one is specifically inpatient mental health. Um, so it's as close to a hospital as any prison will get. But again, it is still a prison first. It's a hospital second. So that's like if they have a break while they're in prison? Or what's that for? Or if they're formally assessed to have a major mental illness Mm -hmm. and they can't manage it at an outpatient prison setting. So like outpatient, one of the big differences is mental health isn't as readily available. You'd maybe see someone every month or once every few months. Uh, And you have what we call KOP, which is keep on person meds. Mm. So you get to carry your own meds around. You don't have to go to a med line to pick up your dailies. But at SOU, right, where it's an inpatient setting, you get weekly sessions most of the time. Unless you're managing, you might do monthlies as well. But mental health staff is readily available if you're to ever, like, have a mental health emergency. We're within cell front in 15 minutes. Right? Staff gets called, hey, I have a guy saying he's having a mental health emergency. Okay, what's the emergency? Well, he's saying he's thinking about killing himself because he just got a Dear John letter. He's not doing well. Great, I'll be at a cell in five minutes. So that's kind of the difference. Like, psych staff is more readily available. You do have a med line where we're tracking whether or not you take your daily meds more often. Because if you miss more than three days, we're checking in with you. And so it's all being tracked on a medication report. We used to call them MARS. Medication Administration Reports? I think so. That sounds right. So, I mean, it is more like a hospital. So if you're in an outpatient prison and let's say you start to not do well, right? You're having a depressive episode or a psychotic episode. We might immediately intervene and say, ooh, we need to send him to a a different prison. And we're going to put him on an immediate transfer. Okay. 
So they might not go to Western, but they may go to the equivalent in prison. Correct. Yeah, we're not likely okay. to send people to Western. Like, that requires an additional like, court order. Okay. So if somebody is having a break, and it depends on the break. It depends on the risk. Um, we also have something called a close observation area or a COA. And that is, that's within my prison. And it is cameraed cells. The lights are on 24-7 so we can watch you. Um, yeah, I mean, Seems it's... like his own personal hell. Yeah, it pretty much is. Yeah, and they've since revamped the COA because they realized that they were treating it like a max custody unit when those individuals weren't in max custody. They just needed it to be in a, in a place where there could be more eyes on them. So it's, it's two-man staffed at any given moment. We can also do what we call direct watches there. So we can have direct eyes on someone if they're a risk to hurt themselves. Yeah. So I, we, I don't think, I think in the eight years that I worked there, only once did we ever formally send someone to Western to be evaluated, and that was after he um, killed somebody at the prison. Another inmate. Wow. And this was not Mr. Scary. It was not, no. But, um... Okay. I, uh... <laughs> I assessed this guy. I know, right? I do have a lot of stories. I assessed this guy literally right after, within 20 minutes of him murdering somebody. We didn't know he had murdered him yet. Like, we 911 this guy out. We put him in a, an ambulance, ambulance to go to the hospital. He was declared dead, like, two days later. But I had assessed this guy because I was working in max custody. This guy shows up in cuffs. We're, we have him in a holding cell. And I'm like, hey, I have to ask you these questions before I can put you in a real cell. I need to make sure what you're going to be safe with. Like if I can give him clothes and bedding and whatever. So that was probably the closest I got to ever having to like testify on a trial. Because I remember like assessing him, coming back off the tier to write my report. And I, I just thought, I am so going to court for this one. <laughs> Just because it was, it was crazy. Did uh, you have to? No, thankfully. It was a clean cut case. I mean, like, he definitely, yeah, I mean. But there wasn't a question. There was not a question, unfortunately. Um, and yeah. he, he was, he was batshit crazy. And so I think we sent him to Western for a formal assessment. Because they needed to make, they wanted to know if he could stand trial for this new murder. Mm-hmm. Right? He was in prison for a completely different reason. And then he killed a inmate coming back from the dining hall. Hmm. Shit's real. I'm only pausing because I have ten other questions in my head, but we're going to stay on track. Uh, I'm going to quickly switch to a random other question that I probably should have started with, and then we'll come back to, you know, safe releases, early releases, mental health, etc. Have you ever heard of the podcast Ear Hustle? Ooh, I have. Is that the inmates in California? Yeah. So I can't tell you how many people have recommended this podcast, but no, I have never heard it. It's pretty good. The, actually, right. the main guy that was in prison is out now. Okay. And they haven't really done, I think, maybe one or two that I saw, unless it's continued and I didn't see it. But that was really an interesting podcast. This journalist was coming in, and mm-hmm. he was, you know, t- teaching people about all the different names, like Selly and terminology mm-hmm. and how it's really like and all of that. So even at my and news, that was, I think San Quentin. Yeah. Oh man, I was just about to quote a line from uh, 
that Kevin Hart movie, <laughs> Get Hard, with Will Will Ferrell. Ferrell. I'm not going to say it. Um, everybody who's seen that movie knows exactly what line about San Quentin I'm about to say, or I'm thinking about. So, <laughs> great movie. I once, when that first came out, I was like, could we do that as a movie night here in prison? <laughs> Everyone's like, that'd probably be really inappropriate. I'm like, but they would love it. They would think it was hilarious, but it would be inappropriate. Um, even at this new job I just got since leaving corrections, someone asked me about your hustle. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I have never heard this podcast. Yeah. yeah, I haven't heard a new episode for quite a while now, okay. but it's pretty good. It's worth I think going today, back. It came out a couple years ago, didn't it? Mm-hmm. At least, yeah. 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 All right. Well, anyway, you should check it out. Okay. And then you can get back to me. Okay. So. Yeah, <laughs> like a full me. report, please. Yeah, full report. <laughs> That's another episode. I'm just chalking you up for the next five years. I love it. Episodes. <laughs> Correctional staff reviews ear hustle. Yes. That yes. should be a fucking podcast. It should be. <laughs> uh, so coming back to safe releases, early releases, mm-hmm. and mental health. So you had mentioned Washington as good about, or as good as you can be about making sure that releases are happening as safely as possible. Mm-hmm. How is that possible if someone is psychotic? or schizophrenic or whatever like we we clearly don't have the community supports Mm -hmm. that's a whole nother episode of without prison being involved how much we're lacking in community support so well and obviously we're talking about here lesser sentences than something like murder right so i mean murder is still released yeah you may still get released after murdering someone again so what i find so unique about uh, like correctional corrections portrayal in uh, fiction is that people always hear oh he was given a life sentence fun fact a life sentence in america is 20 years Mm -hmm. that's what i don't know how that became synonymous with life yeah how long ago was 20 years of life i know know. (laughs) so that actually is kind of like the standard for murder it could be 20 years and again if you're on good behavior you're immediately getting a third of that time back right so that puts you out at what 17 years i don't know 30 percent of 20 that sounds about right we'll call it right yeah i'm not doing math it sounds good i'm not either well i almost said 15 out of 20 and i'm like that's 75 percent it's a little less than 20 yeah (laughs) so you're still getting out. It's not life. That's why life without the possibility of parole or LWOP is significantly different than being like, they were given a life sentence. What kind of life sentence? Mm-hmm. Do you mean 20 years? Do you mean a real life sentence? What are we talk about here? Right. So to safely release somebody who is, we do have a program in Washington State called ORCS. And I, well, I'm going to butcher this acronym. So it's O-R-C-S. And I think it's Offender Release community support i probably just made that up sorry everybody Uh, but it is called orcs so people who have a a dangerous history and a severe mental illness qualify for orcs so they automatically qualify for this community support program and it gives them all the additional resources that hopefully make them successful members of society again we set them up with housing and food vouchers it's like food stamps and and we get them set up with medical so, I seem to remember in the last episode you had mentioned there were times when people would actually stay in prison longer than their release date because you couldn't get those things set up. 
Yes. So if somebody hits their ERD, their earned release date or early release date, again, they're kind of used synonymously, and we don't have any support set up for them, we might potentially say, hey, I'm, I'm working on a housing voucher for you. I'd like you to stay until I can set that up. I mean, technically, if somebody made enough of a stink about it, I think we'd have to release them. They did earn that early release date. And uh, if it comes to the end of their full sentence, then we it have to. Matter. Yeah, if it's their max date, and people have maxed out, and it is a scramble shit show when that happens. Because if things are still not set up for them to, you know, if they don't have a place to live, or. Because we also have things like county of origin right this is the problem within corrections within america is that we release people to the county of origin where they committed their crime but that's also the place where all their antisocial friends still live and their drug dealer is still trading on the corner talk about triggers right and so legislation has recognized oh wait that doesn't make them successful members of society again to put them right back where they committed all their crimes so we have an opportunity to override that, and it's so it's called a county of origin override. And so we cannot legally ever keep someone past our max date. So if somebody's approaching their max date and we don't have any services, it's a total shit show scramble, and then, boom, day arrives, and here's all your stuff, and we are taking you to a bus station with $40 of gate money, and here you are. Check in with your parole officer within 72 hours. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Mm. How often would you say people are released with the resources they need? Oh, it's a good question. Ooh. Percentage-wise. Wait, when they're released with these resources or without? Well, either. Either. I don't, I don't have a percentage. I mean, it's you just have 60, to guess. 60% of all statistics are made up on the spot. <laughs> Do it. Okay, again, in Washington State, I believe we have a much higher percentage of people being released with the things they need to be successful. I mean, I would venture it's anywhere from 70 to 80%. That's better than I thought it would be. Yeah, it is. But considering that's, what, you know, community mental health and resources look like. That's if they're willing to engage, though. I mean, the amount yeah. of people who release and then never show up to check in with their parole officer... Mm. You know, there's only so much somebody can do. So if they don't show up and they don't want to engage, because pretty much one of the one of the top priorities is let's get you working again. And every parole office should have a list of places that are willing to hire people with a felony background. So and work release exists in the world, right? Like you or work work source. Mm, Sorry, mm-hmm. work release is obviously part of uh, part of us in corrections, but then there's work source. At least I think that's what it's called in Tacoma and Seattle. That's what it's called here. Okay. Yeah. So people can show up to work source. They can get all the resources they need to potentially get a job. This is a fun story and a weird tangent, but I was at the Dollar Tree last night actually, and somebody approached me and said, "Work source is closed, and I have a job interview tomorrow, and I want to look nice. Would you mind buying me some things?" And I bought him like three hygiene products. He asked, he was respectful, and I said, good luck with your job interview tomorrow. Be well. Yep, and and that was such a Marie thing to do. (laughs) Marie. (laughs) I do like helping people who are homeless. I like my homeless bags that I pass out. 
Yeah. She does. Like, that's a whole other episode. We don't have it time is. to get into that. We don't have time for that it's right now. 40 minutes in and we haven't oh, gotten to the real question we want to talk about. <laughs> that, that's going to have to be a different one. This is like. the story of our life. <clears throat> <laughs> Hopefully the listeners enjoy all the tangents. Uh, well, they do so far. So what was going to start leading me to that question, and we can certainly start talking about it and go into another episode or however you want to do that, is to discuss the difference between rehabilitative and punitive ideologies within prison. Yes, sentencing is a factor in this, but how do you view prison? So, pouring myself another glass, if you can hear that. Um, (laughs) That question deserved another glass. So I'm a firm believer in that your sentence is your punishment, and once you arrive to prison, we're not there to punish you further. You... Oh, sorry. Before you, I oh. forgot to answer or ask you one question. Um, do you feel like you've ever been outwitted by someone that you were giving therapy to? Oh, that's fun. That's Ooh, a good question. Was that the one I was supposed? Oh, yeah. that's a great question. That's good. Sorry, I meant to ask that before we got into that other. Oh, okay. <sighs> I really want to be just have a Billy Badass moment and be like, no, I've never been outwitted. <laughs> But if I'm being completely honest but with that's myself, silly. you're working right. with sociopaths. Of course, <laughs> of course, I have been outwitted. I, I'm I'm trying to think of like a specific. What's funny is I'm trying to think of a specific story, but what immediately popped into my head, like word association, is I can picture an inmate in particular, who was one of the most bipolar individuals I've ever met in my entire life. I mean, clinical textbook bipolar disorder and he was fucking cray cray i'd like to interrupt just briefly to discuss the fact that uh she's not indicating that everyone with bipolar is quote crazy which is not a term generally that we like to use this is a particular story about a particular individual so just take the rest of the story with a grain of salt as a description of someone that is in prison for whatever they did And also has a mental health disorder. And he was exhausting and super manipulative. And I remember I even had to be interviewed once by fucking Secret Service because he made some crazy ass comments over over one of the prison lines, right? And any call you make going outside of prison. I don't know why I'm surprised this is bipolar. But bipolar is the diagnosis you're discussing this with. But Probably on. during a manic episode, he was like yeah. fucking talking well, to somebody. And you have to remember, too, that, um, you know, a component of bipolar for some individuals, this isn't true of all folks with bipolar, but part of that is you can have psychosis associated. Mm-hmm. Which, that's right, that's right. Which is, you know, um, aligned with, uh, you know, paranoia and... Mm-hmm irrational thought and impulsivity and so you've got I mean there could be that psychosis component yeah but then there's also other variants as well that really can kind of push that mania a little bit harder into the secret service apparently yeah I mean right into the hands of the secret service I remember getting a phone call and I'm like you're who and you know we had to follow all the hoops to to get this special guest to come down and be able to interview the inmate to interview me I mean, ultimately, like, there was literally no risk to any of the statements that he had made, but Secret Service had to respond based on some things that were said over the phone line. And (laughs) 
it was a weird day for me. I just remember being like, I'm getting interviewed by Secret Service right now. Like, what? It's kind of cool. In a, in a state prison. So, I, I don't think that he ever outwitted me, but he's the inmate who tried the darndest. Mm. And he, he was. He was very smart. And, and so he would even do things like repeat your name, right? Because your name is supposed to evoke all these lovely feelings. And so he would be like, Marie, Marie, Marie. And finally I'd be like, you don't need to say my name that many times. Like, what do you want? Stop, <laughs> stop repeating my name. But I swear that's why he was doing it. It was a manipulative tactic that just didn't work out for him. And I don't like my name that much. I don't want to hear it that many times. So. Makes me feel like I'm getting in trouble when somebody calls me by my name. <laughs> well, I was like. So that definitely wouldn't work for me. Yeah. So. Absolutely. I'm sure I've been outwitted. And I'm sure that if I thought, let me think more on it. And okay. I'll come back to you because I, I, again, I will absolutely fall on my sword. And I have no problem being like, oh, yeah, though I screwed this moment up. I, we, I fucked up. So I'm sure that's there. And that, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you saw my face and I was like, oh, wait, I wasn't ready. No, I wonder, I mean, this is a good question because I think, you know, as a therapist, as a social worker, you know, you're engaging with people who want to be there or don't want to be there or anywhere on that spectrum and even people that want to be there I mean there's reluctance there's vulnerability right like that's that's what therapy is and so to be outwitted is a way to put it but I think no matter what like yes you're having to take someone at face value for what they're offering and what they're giving you but the entire time you're in a session with someone you have to be aware that that you are taking someone at their word. Mm. And obviously in that kind of therapeutic rapport and relationship, you're also having to assess all of these other like collateral information and resources and data and other people to really get a sense of what truly is going on, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because I think all of us can sit there and say, oh, I'm sure people have lied to my face. I mean, that's just like part of it, right? I mean, there's a reason they're there to see you because... (laughs) Something needs to be addressed, and there's a level of comfort or discomfort there. So I think outwitted, I mean, of course, you had to have been outwitted. and I. But I don't think it necessarily means that you've done something wrong. I'm not even or, sure I would know it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You might not even know it. But I think that's that's kind of part of therapy in general, right? Yeah. Is having to navigate that conversation, ask questions in different ways, gather data, like, under the table without having someone to say it out loud, like lay it out there, you know, Mm -hmm. but get creative with how you engage with that person in order to really dig into what's going on. So I can think of what, we're going to call him Mr. Cray Cray. We've got Mr. Scary, Mr. Cray Cray. I don't work for the department anymore. I can say whatever I want, apparently. (laughs) And uh, he did, so I was about to teach a group and he wanted to attend my group, but he wasn't currently enrolled in it or or whatever you'd say and I was about to walk into the group room that just happened to be across from his cell door so he could see us all being loaded into the room and and by loaded I mean again the inmates are going to be secured to desks in this programming room and he said hey 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 Marie come here come here come here and I was I was just like oh my god okay what what do you need right now 
And he held up a letter that he had like scribbled on that said, I couldn't, I, I pretended I couldn't see it. So I asked him to, to send it through the door. So he slid it through the door. And on it, it said, let me into your group or I will accuse you of Priya. And Priya stands for the Prison Rape Elimination Act. This is a federally recognized act to reduce, uh, hopefully, sexual assaults while incarcerated. Priya has a lot to do with, obviously, like un, unsanctioned or un, uh, non-consensual acts between offenders because they can't give consent, unfortunately. Uh, despite being adults, like they're both wards of the state, technically, and they just can't do it. And then, obviously... I talked about it last time. It's a federal sex offense for us to ever engage in any interactions with them. So he had said, like, I will accuse you of Priya if you do not let me in your group. And I just was like, cool. Okay, thank you for this. And this is a mistake, and I have lied and told this story differently in the past. (laughs) I wish I had kept that piece of paper. I was going to say. I did it. I... I wrote an incident <laughs> report about the piece of paper and I turned it into the lieutenant and it was all handled appropriately, but I didn't keep the fucking piece of evidence. So instead I was like, thank you for showing this to me. And I think he asked for the paper back and unknowingly I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. You can have it back. Cause I was already going to write the incident report. And Rookie mistake. It was, but they were going to obviously take my word over his. And so in that moment I got rid of a piece of evidence I have since told that story many a times, and I said, yes, it accompanied me off the tier. I stapled it to the report. Yes, I stapled it to my incident report. But he was. He was having a completely manic episode, right, where he was just making grandiose claims and demands, and he just wanted everybody to bow down to him, and da 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 And he was a lot. So I guess I was kind of being, you know, outwitted. Manipulated, I think is my yeah. more fair word, or... Attempted to be manipulated. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And obviously it didn't go very well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thankfully, my incident report and then subsequent, I probably infracted him too for like threatening staff or uh, whatever. And it all went fine and we got him on additional meds and he calmed down. <laughs> but he was a client I was very happy to get off my caseload at one point. So I was like, Yep, you're somebody else's problem now. He was exhausting. So <laughs> that was, yeah, that was potentially being manipulated. Fair. I probably Fair. have more stories like that, but that's the one that immediately word association <laughs> came to mind. I was like, oh, God. Great, great. All right, take a drink. Yeah. We're going to get back to my question just before, which is the rehabilitative versus punitive nature of prison. So... I'm happy to know where my ethical compass lies. And again, I truly believe like somebody being incarcerated, your sentence and having to be in prison, away from your home, away from your comforts, your family, all that things, that is the punishment. We are not here to punish you further. It is extremely unfortunate that there are plenty of people who work in prison who don't see that, who think, No, you're in prison. You're a piece of shit. I'm going to continue to make your life crap every day that I'm here because I can. I hold all the cards. I hold all the power. That isn't the majority of correctional staff that I worked with and certainly not the people I respected and am still friends with. We don't look at it that way. But do those those people exist? Sure. But I don't... Again, I think prison... Prison is a punishment. (laughs) Sleeping in a shit cell on a shit mattress 
you know. It is a good conversation. I mean, it's a great question because, you know, of course, absolutely there are those people and there have been studies that suggest that human nature is this kind of, you know, this authority and power dynamic, right? I mean, we see that in not only in incarceration, but just in the police system in general, but also even just like you know, research studies like the kids with the blue eyes and the brown eyes mm. back then and the Stanford prison study experiment, experiment yeah. and um well that that was a little that was well there are multiple with because he was there was unethical yeah so somebody unethical. recently told me this yeah. yeah and I have yet to do any research into it because the person who told me I, I don't care much about their opinion but I am super curious to read and hear about this because yeah, yeah I didn't know. On no, we are. The, we the are. Bardo, the prison experiment was upheld for a long time as look at this power dynamic, look how quickly we devolve. And it turns out that Zimbardo was a freaking egomaniac, basically, and was definitely influencing how and why that went the way it did. Yeah, I mean, so what I was told is, right, that guards came back and said, oh no, I was told to be that dehumanizing. Yeah, it was pretty far. I mean, it was pretty recent that they released a lot of that information, too. Okay. But, you know, I think there's, again, this is a whole, I can't, we can't, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but group think, right? Like, yeah. I mean, yeah, okay, maybe he said you act this way and influence that, but they behaved that way. So there's something to be said there, too. Yes, and, and I'm not at all debating you i do think there is absolutely power dynamics and issues with authority and etc etc that particular case he was not just saying you should do it he was like pushing them to do it okay i got negging them to do it then i gotta read this because i have a hard time the reason the the, when this was first mentioned to me it was like at a wine night and i was like i'm tired of listening to people who don't know shit about prison talk about prison Mm -hmm. that's where i was at that night and so i sat there though and i thought of course katie was there (laughs) she's like wait a second now i remember this present for this (laughs) yes you were um I had said, of course you'd come out and say that, though. If you acted like a complete beast, yeah. dehumanizing asshole, why wouldn't you say, whoa, wait, wait, I'm not like that. Somebody told me to act that way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just feels like a really easy scapegoat. Yeah. And so I don't know if I even believe the debunking stuff that's come out. So I don't know. I need to do my own research and dig into it. But yeah, different I still episode. stand by the point that no matter what, they did it. Whether mm-hmm. they, you know, whether you're influenced or... Well, it's no different than the old psych experiments, experiments of saying, hey, this is a cup full of acid. I want you to throw it into a stranger's face. Totally. How many people said, I'm not going to fucking do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or what about the one with the button? You know, yeah, the button that gives them, like, pain. shocks or well, something? And they came back on that, too. Remember they, when that originally came out, it was, look how many people were willing to shock people to death. And it turns out that when you look at the statistics, actually most people stopped when they thought they were hurting To someone. some degree, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Well, and so that's why I'm like, I'm surprised that wouldn't apply to the Zimbardo experiment because at the end of the day, I don't care what a professor told you. Mm-hmm. If your moral compass says don't act that way, I'd like to believe more people would say, no, I'm not going to do that thing. I think there was also, and this is just me spitballing outside of my head hearing about this, I believe there was, uh, it was supposed to be a random collection of college students and like, 
randomly assigned who was going to be the prisoner and who was going to be the guard, and, and that was not, not the case. Like, he was looking into their personality profiles and picking... And I think it is... And again, I, I don't take away their, their own self-involvement and their... No, I do think that that study actually did, is one of the studies amongst many, many others that contributed to the development of research ethics, Absolutely. right? Like, so obviously there are a lot... <laughs> I mean, the Tuskegee experiments. Like, we could go into yeah. this forever. A lot of things done in the 70s that you're just like, what the what? You made a baby do what? <laughs> or baby. Oh, babies. <laughs> okay, sorry, anyways. Yes. Let's talk about um, this forever. Back on track. Uh, it's hard to stay of. on track with us because we have good conversations. <laughs> um, so, I'm, I mean, I'm glad to hear you say that because it... I, I feel the same way about it being, re- it should be rehabilitative mm-hmm. because of the statistic that most people are getting out at some point. And what would you want them to be like when they're reentering society, right? doesn't do any good to continue to torture someone in prison and then expect them to be a normal human being when they get out. And I was one of the few people without ever, without it ever being a requirement, because there was one unit at SOU that had a psychologist who kind of required all staff to go by their last name, so Mr. or Mrs., and to refer to all the inmates as Mr. or Mrs. And even prior to working on that unit, I referred to every single individual on my caseload. Anytime I did rounds, it was Mr. So-and-so, Mr. So-and-so. And... I've had staff come back and, and be like, why do you do that? And I and I just, it was so, it seems like the simplest thing in my brain, but not everybody got it, I guess. And I'm, I, I would just say, this person hasn't been shown any respect potentially. And this is the smallest ounce of respect I could ever give them. And they were always allowed to call me Marie. I didn't, I didn't require them to call me Miss So-and-so. Uh, I didn't, you know, I don't. I don't need to be called by my last name, but I always gave them that respect. And then during individual sessions, I would ask them specifically, what do you prefer to be called? So in individual sessions, if they wanted to be called by their first name, I would respect that. But on the tier and in front of their peers and in front of other staff, it would always be Mr. So again, I think I said it the last time, it's unfortunate that we, that corrections employ so many people who do not behave in a manner that is better than the population we supervise. And, and I think I'd even defined better as like somebody whose behaviors um, and ethical code is a bit more upstanding, right? Mm-hmm. So I just... And I think you find that everywhere. Mm-hmm. I think part of that too is, I mean, it does, it does allude to a culture within mm-hmm. the system, right? I mean, it's not just hiring individuals that align on this ethical spectrum a little lower, you know? I mean, obviously there's a culture there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a lot of yeah. that is also created mm-hmm. while you are there. Mm-hmm. For sure. I realize, again, this is back to a small tangent of sentencing, but how are you feeling about minors getting life sentences? Or life without parole, I should say. Ooh. Man, we're just we're just lobbying those heavy hitters right on over today, aren't yeah, we? Do we have context? Do we have context for this question? Yeah, I was like, what's, what are they getting like? So I've seen four. Um, again, this has been a while, so this is just off the top of my head memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm thinking also about the Adnan Syed case, who was technically 17 when he was arrested, oh, was and then they messed case. up the whole paperwork and said he was 18. Blah blah blah. 
he's actually served longer than 20 years, in my opinion, and from everything I've seen, innocent. That's a whole nother conversation about Baltimore being crooked as fuck. But I take, I will come back to the original thought I had when I was writing it, which was I saw a thing about a supermax prison in Colorado, and there were there was a story about some miners that I think had been involved in a robbery, and I don't remember if someone got shot and killed or not. But even the getaway driver, because they were an accessory or whatever, how that works, what mm-hmm. at seventeen was sentenced to life in a supermax as a getaway driver. All right, so I can answer this question on so many different levels. And so I'm going to kind of work through them in my brain. How about it? The getaway driver scenario, I'm going to stick with that for just a hot second because the last position I held within corrections was doing quality assurance for our risk and needs assessment. And you could score someone as a as risk for potential reoffending if they were privy to the details of the crime before they took place. Mm-hmm. So, and, and what I mean by that is if the getaway driver knew that everybody he was escorting into the, I'm just going to go with a bank robbery, right? I'm sure. going to just use something really typical. So bank robbery, and again, robberies are different than burglaries because robbery, at least within the Washington code, means a weapon was involved. Okay. So when people are like, oh, they're down for a burglary charge, that means they probably broke into a house, there was no weapon involved, that person might not have even been home. But if it was a robbery, that means I held you at gunpoint to try and steal something from you. So there was a weapon Mm -hmm. or a knife point or whatever. So this person, he's a getaway driver. If I interview this person and I ask what was happening at the time of this crime and they say, well, my friends got together and... We threw all these guns on the table and they said, listen, this is the plan. This is going to be in and out. Like I've, I've surveyed this bank. It's going to be super easy. I just need you to drive the car. If he knew though, that, that his accomplices were going in armed, he can still be held to that same standard. That's why everybody is kind of sentenced across the board with the robbery. Mm-hmm. And if he later was like, I didn't know they were going to shoot a bank teller. Did you know they were going to have weapons on them? Why do you think they were carrying a gun? Mm -hmm. I can still hold you for a murder charge in addition to the robbery charge because, yeah, I'm sorry, you were privy to what was about to take place. Mm -hmm. Whereas we have had people be incarcerated for much lesser crimes who said, no, my friend was like, hey, can you come pick me up outside? I'm on the corner of 1st and 8th. And you're like, okay, cool. And I just bebop over to that corner and I pick up my friend. Completely unbeknownst to me that they just robbed a liquor store. Right. That's a very different scenario. And so from a risk standpoint, I do actually believe a getaway driver should be held to similar standards based on what their knowledge of the crime was prior to it taking place and what their level of involvement was. So from a risk standpoint, that's how I answer that. For minors to get to the nitty and gritty of what you were actually asking. Mm-hmm. Immediately, I thought of, do you guys remember this crime that took place probably in the last, I don't know, 15 years, 10, 15 years? Two girls in Wisconsin, they were called the Slender, uh-huh. the slender, slender Man. man. Yes. The Slender Man Stabbing. Yeah. Yes. So, 
They were 12, mm-hmm. two 12 year old girls at that, right? And again, yes. I react that way not because of gender, but just because of statistics attached to gender. That was a brutal case. That, that was crazy. The I fact that remember, the victim lived. Yeah, I remember shortly after um, it was ho- that Halloween, right? Mm-hmm. And that was what every single kid wanted to be for Halloween was this like slender man character. Mm-hmm. And how controversial it was. That is the only reason I knew about that case. Because it was just like, everyone needed to be this for Halloween. Yeah. Yeah. So I think one of the girls was just released uh, during COVID. So I think this was in 2021, maybe, or even just last year. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. And she was released from a mental mental prison. Mm -hmm. A mental state prison, whatever. In Wisconsin. She had, like, gained competency. She'd served at that point up to, like, 13 years. I think she released at 25, and they said, okay, like, hey, we've done everything we can with you. Go be a productive member of society. The other individual, while also serving some time at a mental uh, a mental health prison, or a mental state prison, she, or whatever that's called, mental state hospital. Mm-hmm. A state mental health hospital? What am I trying to say right now? Jesus. We know what you're saying. Oh, my God. <laughs> Cut me off. So Never. <laughs> she, <laughs> she served some time there but got sentenced back to prison. That was the girl who did the stabbings. Right. Because the other one was, like, egging her on. But the one who physically held the knife is still incarcerated. <sighs> This is a long tangent to say, do I agree with minors being charged as adults? But there's it depends. such a nuanced question. Yeah, I'm like, it depends. <laughs> a 17-year-old being charged as an adult? Sorry, I kind of agree with that. A 12-year-old being charged as an adult? I don't know if I agree with that. Like, a 12-year-old girl at that? Like, you're in the height, well, a boy or a girl, you are in the height of puberty where your hormones are raging and you are a basket case of crazy. And you are influenced by a lot of things around you without a lot of reality testing or reasoning. And we don't know about the person's history. I mean, we all know that antisocial personality disorder can start a little younger than that onset itself mm-hmm. with other diagnoses like contact disorder. ODD. Conduct, yeah, or ODD. So... I mean... Oppositional defiant disorder. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> so, I mean, there... Yeah. No, I agree. There's so much nuance. That was a good case to bring up for uh, how young they were. Yeah. It's... Because that was a very violent and crime. And how what's, widespread it was. What's I mean, crazy, the reason that that's on the tip of my tongue right now is because I have a friend who just moved to... Oh, I'm going to butcher it. Sorry, Wisconsinites or whatever you call yourselves. Waukesha? Waukesha. Waukesha. Waukesha, whatever, where the crime took place. My friend just moved there and I happened to be, I mean, it's kind of just a weird tangent. Somebody at work, my new job, I think brought up the craziness that can be um, internet uh, fake phenomenon that people make real. Mm -hmm. And they're like, yeah, like the Slender Man killings or the Slender Man. And I go, wait, the Slender Man killings was a thing. How long ago was that? And then I Googled it and I'm like, oh my God, my friend just moved there. So of course I'm like, dude, do you remember this case? That's where you live now. (laughs) (laughs) They did not appreciate it. There was another case that was way earlier. I want to say it was even in England or something. And she was like five or eight or something like killed a five-year-old boy. Oh my God. Mary Bell, I feel like is her name. So her name was Mary Bell. She was 10 years old and she ended up strangling two preschool boys 
in England. I believe she had an accomplice as well. And she was released, I think, when she was 18. But she had a, there was a severe trauma history, sexual history with her mom and that whole living situation. See, and so it's funny that in the state work, right, at a state job, you often hear, it depends. And while that seems dismissive and minimizing, it's so real. Mm-hmm. Because it would. It would depend on so many factors. What is their trauma history? Like, what was their relationship to the victim? What were the circumstances surrounding the crime, the behaviors? Was there a shared psychosis in the Slenderman case? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that one is just absolutely... I mean, that... I think the reason that that one was so unique is it was reminiscent of the Salem witch trials in in that like when people were like, she's a witch and then it just caught. Right. Mm -hmm. I I mean, what is that phenomenon? It's not shared psychosis. It's Uh, well, I mean, we're like every kind of group think or mob mentality. Yeah. Yeah. Mentality group think. Yeah. And, and I mean, even the friend who is now released, right. One of the girls who committed this crime has said, I don't even know why I believed her, but right. I did. I bought into it because the one who is still incarcerated does very much seem to have a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And even at 12, though, that's fucking young. Childhood schizophrenia oh, yeah. is very rare. I yeah. mean, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir Usually in this room. Usually it's in your 20s, right? right? I'm preaching to the choir in this room, but the listeners might not know that. I mean, they might think, oh, whatever, it can appear at any time. No. Schizophrenia is very rare below the age of 17 mm-hmm. in males. Women are 22 on average. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Uh, I am a big believer that your prefrontal cortex is still developing until 25. Mm-hmm. That's why I tell everybody, like, just chill. Take, pump the brakes on making major life decisions. Don't get married before then. Don't have kids before then. Uh, You know, I'm a big advocate of like, let your fucking brain do what it needs to do first. (laughs) So So much happens in your 20s. While I can say that on one hand, that, I do believe that. And I don't know. There are some situations where your antisocial behavior is so egregious. Mm. I'm sorry. You get to be tried as an adult. You do not get to take someone's life and then blame it on being an adolescent. Mm -hmm. And especially if it's, I mean, so gruesome and like without... Heinous. Without, what is the word? Remorse. Remorse without, yeah. I mean... I mean, the girl from the Slenderman stabbing uh, that's still incarcerated showed no fucking remorse. Yeah. I mean, she was like, did she die? That was one of the first questions she asked the police when she got picked up. Mm-hmm. Is she alive? Oh, I wasn't sure. I'm shocked that she's alive because yeah. that was a brutal attack. Yeah, I think she was stabbed 12, 12, 15 times and was able to crawl to the fucking road. Right. And that somebody even found her. At 12. Mm. I mean, she's got more strength than a fucking adult. <laughs> yeah. And I watched too many of those. I survived. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. So, I don't, I don't know. If you, you could throw a case at me, and I would gladly dissect it with you, I don't know if I have a definitive answer about juveniles being sentenced as an adult. It depends. I mean, if, if I'm fair, I think that should be the right answer. Everything should depend. Yeah. There's no black and white. We don't live in a black and white world. No, mm-hmm. we do not. Mm-hmm. And with that, we are taking a break. Please join us again for our last episode episode four of the department of corrections with marie and katie where we finally get to the question 
how do you feel about the death penalty? Again, you can find me on social media, on Twitter at SomedayDeadPC. You can email me at SomedayDeadPC at gmail.com. So remember to live, because someday we'll all be dead. <laughs>